Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is good to be with you on this first Sunday of the new year as we complete our celebration of the Christmas season with Epiphany. It was in the first of his letters to the Christians at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, that the Apostle Paul wrote this, not many who were wise by human standards, not many who were powerful or influential, not many who were of noble birth have been chosen by God to know Christ. That's the end of the first chapter of this great epistle, and It's fair to say Paul's observation is accurate, and certainly as it relates to the church in Corinth. 
And yet, the passage we read this morning tells us that at least some who were wise, some who were of noble birth, some who were powerful and influential came to worship Jesus. We call them the Magi, the wise men. They came from the distant east, probably the nation of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, and they were so distinguished even by the worldly standards of that day that their arrival in Jerusalem caused a stir. King Herod was disturbed, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, we read. And they came to Jerusalem asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our eyes to how you might lead us as we think about this star and those who followed it, and more importantly, who they found when their search ended. And so we pray that we would be open in our minds, in our hearts, and in our wills to following you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, probably like a lot of you in our home, every Advent we set up a nativity crash somewhere prominent in our living room. To begin with, though, it's just the animals around the manger. Before too long, Mary and Joseph appear on a journey. They're not there yet at the manger. They begin not at the stable, but somewhere else in the living room. And then on Christmas Eve, the holy couple, the shepherds, the angels all arrive. They're placed inside the stable, and in the morning, the baby Jesus goes in the manger, and then we open our presents. Except that in our house, the three wise men don't arrive on the scene until after the 12 days of Christmas on January 6th, because it's on that day, Epiphany, the day that the church historically celebrates their arrival in Bethlehem, when Jesus is revealed to them. The word Epiphany is from a Greek word meaning to reveal. And so yesterday, on January 6th, they finally made it. And now our crush scene is complete and soon we'll go back in a box, <laughs> but that's for later. But did you know that to, the, to this day, the people in Spain wait until Epiphany to open their presents? Why? Well, that's because that's the day when Jesus received his presents from the Magi, and today is Epiphany Sunday. But can you imagine if your children and grandchildren had to wait until yesterday to open their Christmas presents? Well, Epiphany is the conclusion of the annual celebration of Christmas, and we're remembering the Epiphany story from Matthew 2, 1 through 12 that Mike read for us. Truth of the matter is, we don't know very much about these visitors, not as much as we think we know. It's only tradition that tells us that there were three of them, or that they were kings. English translations of the Bible simply call them wise men or 
more specifically, magi. Matthew only tells us that they had three gifts, not that there were three of them. But, of course, they were men. And as at least half of you here in the congregation this morning will be able to attest, if they had been women, if there had been one woman, they would have stopped earlier to ask for directions and they would not have been late to Jesus' birth. And the children in Spain wouldn't have had to wait until yesterday to open their presents. But we read in verse 2 that the Magi were observing the movement in the stars in the night sky. And this helps us really to understand who they were. Many of the ancient societies around uh, Israel and before then had esteemed intellectuals who studied the stars so that they could understand not only the present but the future. And people of that time believed that the birth and therefore before the birth of a new king, the death of an old king, the birth and death of great kings was marked by unusual signs in the night sky. Great civilizations, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, all predecessor powers to the Romans at the time of Jesus' birth, they all had magi who were known for their special magical, hence magi, but powers to discern the movement of the stars, and that's where they get their name. Matthew doesn't tell us where they're from, other than that they came from the east. But one thing is very clear. These ancient astronomers were Gentiles. And they weren't, they weren't the only ones at the time looking for a new king. There are several ancient sources from right around the time prior to Jesus' birth that tell us that in various cultures and civilizations there was a great hope that a new leader would be born, one who would usher in an era of peace. Two Roman writers, Pliny and Suetonius, told of one who would bring the nations of the world together into a grand united empire. The classical poet Virgil predicted a boy who would be born of a virgin, a supposed savior. He would become divine and eventually rule the world. It's in Eclogue 4 of Virgil. You can look it up online. It's right there. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that there was also a heightened sense of messianic expectation among the Jews around this time. In other words, both classical and Jewish writers record a universal hope for the birth of a divine savior king. And the Magi in Matthew's Gospels are among those who appear to be looking for this widely hoped for new king. And as they studied the movement of the stars, it led them to Jerusalem in a search for the newborn king of the Jews. When they arrived, their first encounter was with a man who had spent his entire lifetime and career contending for that title. Herod was one of ancient history's extraordinary figures. His was the biggest name in ancient Palestine. When he became king, Herod embarked on an ambitious building program, ordering up huge forts, palaces, whole cities throughout Judea. Some of them were on the scale of the wonders of the ancient world. You could hardly walk down a major road without encountering one of his building projects. Herod was literally everywhere. 
And over the course of his administration, he accumulated vast power and wealth, so that by the time of Jesus' birth, near the end of his reign, his extraordinary accomplishments had earned him the name Herod the Great. Every one of his, count them, seven palace complexes was grander than any owned by the emperors in Rome. On a huge plateau above the Dead Sea sat the giant fortress of Masada. He turned it into paradise with two separate palaces, storehouses, gardens, and agriculture. There were pools, even a sauna. On the coast of the Mediterranean, Herod built a beautiful seaside palace with a freshwater swimming pool that extended 100 yards into the ocean. But it was in Jerusalem where you could find the jewel in Herod's crown, a beautiful temple which served as the spiritual, economic, and social center for Judea. It was an icon to the Jews throughout the region. Herod was seeking to rival the reign of the great King Solomon, builder of Israel's first temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians nearly 600 years earlier. Although he had not been born into royalty, Herod's accomplishment made him, made a case for the title King of the Jews. He had given status and dignity to Israel. There had not been a ruler in Judea who had produced results like him in a long time. Herod had a lot going for him if there is such a thing as campaigning to be a king. Except Herod was a paranoid tyrant. When Jesus was born, Herod had been king for over 30 years. He had accomplished more than any political leader in recent memory. For all his accomplishments, you'd think he'd be pretty secure. He wasn't. He was so afraid of losing command that he had a bodyguard of 2,000 soldiers. He'd killed thousands in the streets while taking power, and during his reign, he murdered almost everyone who he thought might possibly betray him. This included his mother and most of his male heirs and children. He reigned in terror. There was a saying, better to be Herod's swine than his son. So when the Magi came asking for directions to the newly born king of the Jews, born right under Herod's nose, no less, Herod was predictably upset. When the Magi inquired in Jerusalem about the birthplace of the king, it turned out to be not that big a mystery or particular secret. The Jewish relig religious leaders all knew that the prophet Micah foretold that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem which was only just down the road. Of all the palaces Herod built, nothing was greater than his fortress on the highest mountain in the Judean wilderness just outside of Bethlehem. It was called the Herodium. It was a magnificent circular structure with two concentric walls, the space between, a distance of 20 feet was large enough for apartments. People lived there in the walls. And inside the fortress, Herod constructed yet another lavish palace. Below the exterior walls were gardens and exotic fruit orchards, olive fig, date trees. What must the Magi have thought as they encountered Herod's opulent palaces in their search 
for the newborn king. Had they understood his advisors correctly, that the baby was in the little town of Bethlehem? The guidance they received must have puzzled them. Was it possible for a baby king to be born anywhere but the splendor of a palace? And there were so many splendid palaces. Compared to the Jewish scholars, the Magi knew very little, at least about the Jewish traditions. They weren't Jews. They weren't steeped in Hebrew prophecy. They didn't know the law of Moses. But they were curious. And God used that curiosity, plus a sign in the heavens, to draw them to himself. How many times have we heard the story of Jesus and his birth in Bethlehem? How many times has the church proclaimed the story of the Savior's entry into the world, born in the manger, not in the splendor of a palace, but in the humility of a rural village? The Magi had no idea where they were headed. They just followed the star until they got to Jerusalem, and from there, they were guided by the Scriptures to Bethlehem. You and I know better even than Herod and his advisors, certainly better than the Magi, that the Savior was born in Bethlehem. And yet these foreigners are searching. They're bringing all the best science and philosophy of the day to shed light on their quest. And in spite of potentially confusing circumstances, such as Jesus being born so near to one of King Herod's opulent palaces, the Magi found their way and we see them bow in adoration before the newborn king. All the meanwhile, those who knew the location all along missed his arrival because, for whatever reason, they didn't make that very short trip down the road to Bethlehem. Herod, his advisors, and the Magi represent the choice each one of us faces. And I'm afraid that many times, I, many of us, are more like Herod than we care to admit. Secure in what we know. We know Bethlehem exists. And if we decide to go there, if we decide to seek, we have a story that will guide us. And if we didn't decide to go to Bethlehem this year, well, there's always next Christmas. The story won't change. Just as Bethlehem was familiar territory for Herod and his advisors, the story of Jesus' birth is also familiar territory for many of us. We can go there really anytime. Herod represents the preference each of us or at least some of us have, to remain on the throne of our lives rather than to leave behind what's familiar and secure, to leave all that behind to worship the newborn king. Or perhaps we might find ourselves wanting to stop at the grand circular palace with its concentric walls and exotic fruit groves and never get to Bethlehem, like the Magi did. 
They got there, stumbling into the hay, kneeling in the dust of a humble dwelling in a backwater village. Except that's where God chose to make his entry into the world. In the midst of the grandiosity of Herod, God chose not only to become human, but to become small. And so the Magi give us insight into the choice that's before us. Let's look at them. They're seekers, earnestly pursuing the truth. I hope that in that sense, all of us are seekers, in the best sense of that word. The Magi are notable first in the length to which they went. They journeyed into completely unfamiliar territory, willing to leave behind the familiar and the secure, going with what they believed to be the best wisdom that they had, and then allowing the scriptures to bring them to their destination. Theirs was an authentic pursuit of truth. And I think that God uses and honors such approaches to the truth. I think that any who truly seek to find God will reach the conclusion that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the single authentic road to the truth, and that the truth of the manger and the Savior in it is the end of the search. I think it has certainly been that for an awful lot of us, but maybe not all of us, maybe not all of the time. So many of these days are on some sort of a search, chasing some star in the hope of finding just the right approach to life. But are these genuine spiritual quests? Is it a searching for the truth such that one is willing to abandon everything and to let go with the familiar? Or is it a search and a searching that's merely enamored with looking, all the while remaining comfortably unchanged? Star Trek is one of the most successful television series in science fiction history. The original series resulted in nine successor series and 13 movies. It began as a search, the five-year mission of the USS Enterprise to venture into space, the final frontier. Their mission, you can say it with me if you'd like, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man or woman has gone before. And since the 60s, year after year, series after series, the crew of the Enterprise kept searching. They didn't have a, an end goal except to keep going. Look wherever you can. Never finishing. Continually searching. And it seems to me that many on the search today really don't expect to end anywhere, or maybe they don't want to. There's so many different places to engage, to search. A wide variety of philosophies and spiritualities that urge us to look everywhere from within ourselves to so far beyond we can't comprehend it in order to find the divine. 
partisan politics or other comfortable echo chambers. Find a new circle of friends. Be spiritual but not religious. You can even try church. But whatever you do, wherever you look, you don't finish searching. The Magi had a different approach, and it's instructive to everyone who would seek and follow the Savior today. When the Magi found Jesus, their search ended. It was that simple. When they arrived at the place where the child lay, Matthew tells us they were overwhelmed with joy. His Greek is almost awkward. Literally, it reads, they rejoiced greatly with great joy exceedingly. And then they bowed down and worshiped the newborn king. The Magi not only seek, they find. And they know it when they find it. And their response is so instructive. The frankincense the myrrh, the expensive gifts given to the Christ child. These were tools and trades of magicians and fortune tellers in the ancient world. And they gave this up in their adoration of the babe in the manger. The Magi weren't just giving presents. They were giving up old ways. That's what it means to go home by a new road. Because after worshiping the newborn king, home became a different place, and they were different people. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we call the Magi the wise men, because they knew when it was time to stop the search and to bow down and worship. For some 2,000 years, Christians have come to understand as we've reflected on this story and Jesus' advent and his life teaching, the stories of the New Testament, the teaching of Paul, we've come to understand that the very one that they were seeking and that we are seeking has in fact found us. And so we boldly proclaim that the search for the truth is over, not because our efforts have led us to find the Savior, but because by God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ and being born in a manger, the Savior has found us. It turns out that the greatest seeker in the world was not one of the Magi, it's Jesus Christ. And the message of the Christian gospel is not that out of all the ideas and philosophies and visions of reality, we alone have found the truth. It's that the truth has come in search of us. And that we're here in church worshiping on the first Sunday of the new year to bear witness to the one truly great seeker. And so the good news this year and this day is that the search is over. In our seeking, we have been found. Everything has changed. We have a new home, a new way of going there. This is the end of whatever Star Trek we might have been on. And I hope this year will be the year that you decide to take the well-known road to Bethlehem and after having stopped there, and worshiped and laid down 
whatever it is you need to lay down, you start down a different road and take a new way home. Let us pray. Lord God, may we find you, and in finding you, be found, transformed, forever changed. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.